If you're tired of these promos, supporters get the podcast early and ad-free. Just go to donate.bogosity.tv for the links to sign up. Welcome to the Bogosity Podcast for the week of August 7, 2022. The podcast that's creepy, kooky, mysterious and spooky, and altogether ooky. This is your host, Shane Killian. Since the podcast has been on vacation for a few weeks and there's a lot of stuff we missed, enjoy this special edition where we catch up by having not one, not two, not three, but four biggest bogan emitters. As for idiot extraordinaire, there can be only one. So let's structuralize the news of the bogus. While that didn't take long, we now have the first cracking of a post-quantum encryption protocol. As we covered previously, new algorithms are being developed to protect against the possibility of future attacks from quantum computers. We covered the competition NIST has been running for new post-quantum algorithms, which are algorithms that can run on a classical computer but protect from quantum attacks. NIST announced the first four algorithms that are to be considered standards. This was not one of the four. They were still considering other algorithms to complete the new standards. This is one of the ones they were considering called Psyche, or Super Singular Isogeny Key Encapsulation. Belgian cryptographers Walter Kastrick and Thomas Decru published a paper, An Efficient Key Recovery Attack on SIDH. SIDH is Super Singular Isogeny Diffie-Hellman, which they describe as a specific use of the Psyche algorithm whereby two ends of a communication channel perform a DHM-like cryptodance to exchange a bunch of public data that allows each end to derive a private value to use as a one-time secret encryption key. They showed that, operating solely from public information such as the data exchanged during key setup, they could potentially recover the private key of one of the participants, eavesdropping on the conversation and even pretending to be one of the participants. The cracking algorithm can be run in about an hour on a single laptop CPU. They concluded, With the current state of affairs, SIDH appears to be fully broken for any publicly generated base curve. Of course, it's good that such a vulnerability was found now when the standards are still being hammered out. It's possible that the creators of Psyche could fix the issues, or if not, Psyche could simply not be included in the standards. And as Paul Ducklin of Naked Security points out, this is exactly why no one should try to roll their own crypto. Here we have an algorithm designed by professionals that's been examined for years and even included as a finalist in NIST standards, and it ended up being vulnerable. It's also a good argument for Kirchhoff's principle, the idea that relying on secrecy of anything but the encryption key is a bad idea. Ducklin writes, Proprietary encryption systems that rely on the secrecy of the algorithm itself to maintain their security are simply unacceptable in 2022. If a PCQ algorithm such as Psyche survived perusal and probing by experts from around the globe for more than five years, despite being disclosed specifically so that it could be subjected to public scrutiny, then there's no need to ask yourself how well your homemade, hidden-from-view encryption algorithms are likely to fare when released into the wild. Yeah, the answer there is, it won't. Leave it to the standards. If you're looking for a way to support this channel, but you don't have any spare cash and you can't stand ads, you can do so by generating your own cryptocurrency. 
Use the links at the bottom of the description to follow the link to odyssey.com to listen to the podcast and see all of my YouTube videos as well. Just watching videos will produce cryptocurrency for the creator and yourself. And since Odyssey is always monetized and never censored, you'll have no problem seeing all the videos from your favorite creators. You can also use the library credits you create at Odyssey to tip creators and even purchase paid content. Earn library credits through various rewards, including daily view rewards and the number of shares and invites. And you can interact with creators in all sorts of ways, including like and dislike, comment, boost a post by supporting it, repost it, and share to other sites, all while earning crypto for the creator. Easily monetize yourself and your favorite creators using cryptocurrency without advertising. Use the link below to visit this channel on odyssey.com and see many of your other favorites there as well. More confirmation of what we were warning about from the start. A lot of the COVID policies would have negative effects, perhaps even worse than COVID itself, such as the folly of the precautionary principle. Although much of the world has returned to semi-normal, there are still places in the world where children have been out of school and isolated from their peers for over two years. In the Philippines, children have been out of school for 27 months, the first 12 of which not even allowed to leave their homes. And the damage was worse than almost anyone expected. Before the pandemic, 57% of 10-year-olds in low- and middle-income countries couldn't read a simple story. Now, it's as high as 70%. The effect is most pronounced in Latin America, where it seems to have risen from 50% to 80%. That means that these children will grow up to be less productive and wealthy, and will grow up in more repressed economies. According to the consultancy firm McKinsey, by 2040, education lost to school closures could cause global GDP to be 0.9% lower to the tune of $1.6 trillion than it otherwise would have been. And the World Bank thinks it could cost children $21 trillion in lifetime earnings. Given a baseline of 20 weeks of school closure, only Europe and Central and East Asia were back to school in time. Getting progressively worse was Sub-Saharan Africa, North America, the Middle East, South Asia, and Latin America. And given a 40-week baseline of remote or partially remote learning, only Europe and Central Asia met the expectation. Progressively worse was Sub-Saharan Africa, North America, East Asia, the Middle East, Latin America, and South Asia. Echoing what many of our own children told us, school kids all over the world were grateful to be back in school, such as 16-year-old Jose Emilio Robles, who said, We used not to want to come to school. Now we really do. And they learned very little from remote learning, an analysis from the World Bank, Harvard, and the Brookings Institution looked at 35 studies from 20 rich countries. The average loss was equivalent to what would be learned in one-third to one-half of a year of normal schooling. In England and America, children were between two and five months behind where they otherwise would have been. And it's even worse in poor countries. Globally, school children seem to be, on average, eight months behind where they would normally be. Jamie Saavedra of the World Bank calls this, quote, the worst educational crisis for a century, and certainly since the world wars. My fear is that 15 years from now, people will be writing papers documenting consistently lower earnings, productivity, and well-being for people who are now between 6 and 20 years old. I don't see societies taking this seriously. Of course not! Not when there's plenty of other fear-mongering to be doing. 
So you remember when Joe Biden and Janet Yellen were saying inflation was transitory and Robert Reich was saying it was nothing to worry about? Well, now this temporary and transitory inflation has been going on for more than 13 straight months. In June 2021, Yellen said, quote, We have in recent months seen some inflation, and we, at least on a year-over-year basis, will continue, I believe through the rest of the year, to see higher inflation rates, maybe around 3%. But I personally believe that this represents transitory factors. The next month, Biden said there was nothing to worry about and inflation would be, quote, temporary. Quote, We also know that as our economy has come roaring back, we've seen some price increases. Some folks have raised worries that this could be a sign of persistent inflation, but that is not our view. That was around the same time Rice said that inflation was a scare and that we shouldn't worry about it. Quote, There are almost no inflationary threats. You don't even have wage price inflation pressures growing. You have a lot of things to worry about, but inflation is not among them. Now, inflation is at a four-decade high of 9.1%, growing at its fastest pace since December of 1981. And it's way past the point that Biden can blame it on COVID or Putin or the oil companies or any other bogeyman. It's inflationary spending combined with economic repression, especially in areas that Biden and his ilk don't like. Yeah, don't pay any attention to that $30 trillion national debt. That has nothing to do with it. If you're on the Wi-Fi in a coffee shop or hotel, anyone on that network can get your traffic. Do you really trust all of those strangers? For that matter, do you really trust your ISP? A VPN can protect you from prying eyes, disguise your location, and even foil government censors. It's essential in this day and age, so go to vpn.pagosity.tv and you'll be taken to BoxPN. Starting at just $2.99 a month, you can get unlimited high-speed connections to VPN servers all over the world, and they don't log connections, so your privacy is assured. Traveling abroad, just VPN home, and don't worry about what those other governments are doing. Back at home, stop your ISP from traffic shaping and messing with the quality internet access you're paying good money for. You can connect from multiple machines at once, including your smartphone or tablet, and it supports all the secure standards, including OpenVPN and SSTP. Bypass sensors and surveillance with your own secure VPN connection. Go to vpn.pagosity.tv. <laughs> On a similar note, gas prices at the pump are being blamed on Putin and corporate greed and all sorts of things other than our government's policies. So corporations are greedy in setting prices at $5 a gallon, but they weren't greedy at the end of the Trump administration when it was $1.85? It's always funny when corporate greed starts and when it ends. He's requested a meeting with the energy secretary and the oil companies to demand an explanation. Uh, how about the fact that you shut down Keystone XL and put limits on new pipeline construction? Or the fact that you halted new oil and gas leases? How about the fact that you raised the so-called social cost of greenhouse gas emissions to seven times what it was under Trump? What about the methane fee or stupidly increasing ethanol requirements? It's not just Biden. It's the Democrats at large. Assembly Speaker Anthony Rendon tweeted, Oil companies rake in record profits, while hard-working Californians struggle to pay record prices. 
Some believe the solution is to give big oil even more money through a gas tax holiday. We're working on a plan to provide relief that doesn't hinge on the kindness of big oil. By the way, California's gas tax is 68 cents per gallon, the highest in the nation. That's on top of the 18.4 cent federal tax. But no, it's the 7 cents per gallon profit that the oil companies make that's the problem. Oh, by the way, California also has a 2 cent underground storage fee, a 14 cent state sales tax, which most other states don't apply to gasoline, a 25% cap and trade fee, and a 22 cent low carbon fuel standard fee. And then there are the fluctuations caused by a mandated switch to a special summer blend of gasoline. All total, that means that the government of California adds $1.32 to the price of gas. But in the marketplace, the price of anything isn't because of greed or whatever. It's because of supply and demand. But then, politicians never have been that great at economics, especially when it says they're to blame for the economy. Issues such as the Russo-Ukrainian war, post-pandemic demand, and so on are fleeting. The market adjusts for them. Not so with government, who takes far more than corporations do by force, but accepts none of the blame. If you're looking for the people to blame, they're in Capitol buildings in D.C., Sacramento, and other places, not in boardrooms. Now it's time to restart our first biggest bogan emitter. And this week it goes to Germany, in particular Chancellor Olaf Scholz and Economy Minister Robert Habeck, for saying that they're just unable to get nuclear plants operational again. As Mark Nelson, founder and managing director of Radiant Energy Group, pointed out on Twitter, that's just false. Plant operators at the Isar nuclear power plant, which is scheduled to be shut down at the end of the year unless politicians give them the go-ahead to keep operating, said that this is just false. They have the staff and fuel to get up and running again. They just need political permission. Bernd Gulick, the plan's head of communications, said, quote, We have offered to the federal government to continue operating the plant after the 31st of December, should the government allow it. Note, all quotes from this story are translated from the original German. It's the Federal Ministry of Economy that's opposing it. They claim there's no legal basis for it and no fuel to generate any more electricity until the fall of 2023. Gullick said that's just not true. It would take some effort, but there wouldn't be any problems. Quote, We don't need new fuel rods right away. We also don't need any upgrades or even new permits. The safety of the plan isn't of concern either. It contains both passive and active safety features. Quote, And the safety of the plan is absolutely assured today as well as next year. The plan complies with modern safety technology standards, and this was confirmed by the Bavarian Nuclear Authority, the Society for Reactor Safety, and TÜV. As for the personnel, most of them would have to stay employed anyway during the decommissioning and demolition. Quote, we have said at Preuss and Electra that we would, in a concerted effort across the entire corporation, provide enough licensed personnel for continued operation. We can, and we want to if we are needed. His claims have been verified by experts who continue to be ignored by the German government. Continued phase-out of nuclear is just going to exacerbate Germany's dependence on oil and natural gas, which has only gone up, along with their carbon emissions, since they started shutting down nuclear reactors in favor of renewables, 
but as we keep seeing, renewables just don't cut it. Compared to France, which is far from optimal, but they have enough nuclear power to lower their carbon emissions and lessen their dependence on oil and natural gas. Every country needs to be making more nuclear power, not shutting down what they have. And they certainly shouldn't be lying about it the way the German government is. So all of that makes Germany our first biggest bogan emitter. Do you have children or nieces or nephews? Are you homeschooling or just want to counter some of the socialist indoctrination most children get in school? If so, go to bogosity.tv slash Tuttle Twins and you'll be taken to a website where you can get some great books for elementary age children. The Tuttle Twins books are books about liberty and free market economics that include children's versions of Bastiat's The Law, Leonard Reed's I Pencil, and Hayek's The Road to Serfdom, as well as books about the Federal Reserve and how regulations protect business cronies. They'll learn about the harm caused by eminent domain or regulations passed in the name of safety and fundamental concepts of liberty. And as you can see from the sample pages on the website, they're all easy to read and nicely illustrated. They're just $9.99 a piece, or get a special discount as well as free bonuses when you purchase all five. You can even buy in bulk to donate to schools and local libraries. So get the Tuttle Twins books at bogosity.tv slash Tuttle Twins. <laughs> And now it's time to depress our second biggest bogan emitter. And this one is Wikipedia. Their reputation has been taking a hit in recent years as more and more articles are edited to reflect particular biases, but now they're just parroting propaganda. An economic recession is where the economy recovers from malinvestment by restructuring economic assets. Of necessity, this requires economic activity to be muted for a while, as people stop spending and save instead, and their savings is used for investing in the new assets the economy needs. And there's been a consistent definition used by all schools of economics to tell whether or not you're in a recession. Two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. As part of their outright denial of what every working-class person in the economy already knows, they're having to deny up and down a blue streak that we're in a recession which just became impossible after the Bureau of Economic Analysis reported a GDP growth rate of negative 0.9% for the second quarter of 2022, following the negative 1.6% growth in the first quarter. That's a recession, folks. So the Biden administration has been claiming that this actually isn't the definition of recession. In a blog post, the White House wrote, What is a recession? While some maintain the two consecutive quarters of falling real GDP constitute a recession, that is neither the official definition nor the way economists evaluate the state of the business cycle. Instead, both official determinations of recessions and economists' assessment of economic activity are based on a holistic look at the data, including the labor market, consumer and business spending, industrial production, and incomes. Based on these data, it is unlikely that the decline in GDP in the first quarter of this year, even if followed by another GDP decline in the second quarter, indicates a recession. That was published one week before the BEA published the GDP figures. Make of that what you will. White House officials have cut off every discussion about a recession, with the press secretary deflecting questions about it, and when Biden was asked about it, said, quote, It doesn't sound like a recession to me. 
All of these statements were widely mocked by economists and financial analysts, except for the insiders, of course. Now, to Wikipedia. Up until July 11, Wikipedia included in its definition of a recession, quote, two negative consecutive quarters of growth. Users were free to make alterations. By July 25th, during the very week the White House redefined recession, this phrase was removed from the section. On the 27th, after further scrubbing, a Wikipedia administrator locked the page from being edited. A further edit of a different page said we were always at war with East Asia. Wikipedia co-creator Larry Sanger, in an interview with Unheard last year, said he no longer trusted Wikipedia. Quote, If you look at the articles that Wikipedia has, you can just see how they are simply mouthing the view of the World Economic Council or World Economic Forum and the World Health Organization, the CDC, and various other establishment mouthpieces like Fauci. They take their cues from them. There's a global enforcement of a certain point of view, which is amazing to me as a libertarian or as a liberty-loving conservative. I looked through the page history myself. In particular, a user called Soy Bangla was the one going through and removing the references. Other such edits were from a user calling himself David Radcliffe, one on the 25th saying, deleting nonsensical comment about negative GDP. His only edit was to remove the sentence, Economists typically consider two consecutive quarters of negative GDP a recession. It was around this time that the edit war ensued, with changes being made and reverted like crazy. As of this podcast prep, the page had been edited a further 261 times, unprecedented for such an old page in this amount of time. One anonymous user had edited the page with the note, Why should a general article on recession used in its header country-specific organizational definitions, which are not even the general definition understood in that country. The general definition, as stated in Oxford Dictionary, is a period of temporary economic decline during which trade and industrial activity are reduced, generally identified by a fall in GDP in two successive quarters. Administrators kept calling the traditional definition unsourced or poorly sourced content and called attempts to restore it Vandalism. Endwise had made a note to Soy Bangla. I did not add this originally. I just reworded it and added extra sources. It is you who originally removed it, and so it would be you that would need to find additional talk page support. I let the talk page discussion play out a bit, and it seems evident you aren't attracting any additional support for removing it, so I'll re-add it, taking into account a concern you raised about phrasing it as there being no global definition and go to bed. Soy Bangla promptly reverted it. Since these stories were posted, and after an enormous outcry from the internet, the definition was semi-restored, and the story now reads, quote, Although the definition of recession varies between different countries and scholars, two consecutive quarters of decline in a country's real gross domestic product, real GDP, is commonly used as a practical definition of a recession. In the United States, a recession is defined by the National Bureau of Economic Research, and continues from there. The talk page then became full of histrionics with paragraphs like, quote, If you are about to hate post the definition of a recession is two quarters of declining GDP, the article already says that, so this would be a waste of time unless you have further suggestions for improving the article. A little further down, it says, the article always said something about two down GDP quarters. 
It's funny because one of the revisions on the 28th said, quote, The thing that got removed is currently back in the article and being discussed on the talk page. Yes, it was removed. And that other page I mentioned was edited to read, We were always at war with Eurasia. The general lock has been removed, but only confirmed editors can edit the page. Look, this kind of thing happens with crowdsourcing. We all get that. And edit wars happen. It's not just that a bunch of people came in and changed the definition to match government propaganda. It's that attempts by others to fix it were thwarted, and at the end, when a very compromised definition was put into place to shut up the critics, it was denied that the removal ever took place. That's a lot less crowdsourcing and a lot more mini-true. So all of that makes Wikipedia our second biggest bogan emitter. Let's ingeminate biggest bogan emitter number three. This one is the SEC, which, going against both their own past statements and legal definitions themselves, are trying to classify all cryptocurrencies as securities. In particular, the SEC has been engaging in a huge and, at times, hilarious legal action against Library based on their token, LBC, which they are going to great lengths to classify as a security. This comes on the heels of their action against Ripple. As Jake Travinsky reported on Twitter, the SEC filed a complaint yesterday accusing 10 companies of violating the securities laws, nine digital asset issuers, and one exchange. None of them are defendants in the case. None of them will get their day in court. If this isn't regulation by enforcement, nothing is. They went against a former Coinbase employee, his brother, and his friend for allegedly engaging in insider trading, which, as we've covered repeatedly, shouldn't even be against the law to begin with. Unlike the actual crime as defined by Congress, which is where you sell insider information to someone who isn't allowed to have it, the SEC's definition is simply being in possession of insider information, even if you're completely supposed to have it, and then buying or selling stocks or assets based on it. You know, exactly how the price mechanism is supposed to work. Anyway, to establish jurisdiction, the SEC claims that nine digital assets that are being used are unregistered securities. Quote, It's not uncommon to learn for the first time that an enforcement agency has identified a violation when a complaint is filed. But typically that happens when the agency files an action against the person who they think broke the law. This is different. Very different. Here, the SEC isn't just accusing the defendants of breaking the law. The SEC is also accusing 10 unrelated, uncharged companies are breaking the law. Nine for failure to register digital asset securities, and one for operating an unregistered national securities exchange. And since the SEC didn't name them as defendants, they don't get their say in court. But it's even worse than that. Some of these assets are listed on other trading platforms who have got to be thinking that they might have to delist the assets lest the SEC turn their sights on them. Quote, Just by making unproven accusations in an enforcement action, the SEC can impose obligations on platforms and restrictions on companies of a type that usually requires regulation. Literally, regulation by enforcement. But unlike actual regulation, no opportunity to be heard. 
On top of that, when the SEC's enforcement director testified in Congress and was asked questions about that, he refused to answer, citing confidentiality. So you can't even know if they consider you to be breaking the law or not. And this is the same director who said last November that the SEC doesn't engage in regulation by enforcement, even though they totally do. Even CFTC Commissioner Carolyn D. Pham said that they do. In a statement made on SEC versus Wahi, she wrote, The case is a striking example of regulation by enforcement. The SEC complaint alleges that dozens of digital assets, including those that could be described as utility tokens and or certain tokens relating to decentralized autonomous organizations, DAOs, are securities. Over in the library case, John E. Deaton, founder of CryptoLaw.us, reported, In the library comm summary judgment hearing, the SEC lawyer argued that the last prong of Howie, relying on the efforts of others, is satisfied in any blockchain token case from the thousands of nodes around the world. Let that sink in. He's referring to the Howie test. Search on my YouTube channel if you want to know more about how it works. In Howie and security cases after, the efforts of others factor was tied to the promoter who made promises that you could expect profits because of the promoter's efforts and plan. That was the common enterprise you rely on for the profits. Not any longer, according to the SEC. He quotes the SEC as saying, The Commission, on the other hand, does not require vertical or horizontal commonality per se, nor does it view a common enterprise as a distinct element of the term investment contract. He continued, In the Library.com case, the judge asked, what if a promoter sold a token and said, my company isn't going to do one thing to help this crypto asset gain in value? We won't be involved at all, and we will just see what happens and let the crypto market do its thing. The SEC lawyer said it would be a security, even if you didn't rely on the efforts of the promoter, because you're relying on the nodes to validate transactions. It's insanity. Library has been trying to get a copy of the transcripts of the case to make them public. The SEC is stonewalling them. They tweeted, The SEC has requested the transcript of our most recent hearing to be sealed from the public for 90 days. Someone knows they effed up. Deaton said, I'm getting the summary judgment transcript and I will publish it. I attended in person and it is scary what the SEC lawyer argued. But he could only publish a summary, prompting Library to tweet, it's absolutely insane that the only legal way to share this hearing is a paraphrase of a transcript, but evidently, that's how the American justice system works. Here's part of his summary, so I guess it's a summary of a summary. Judge, I think it's inevitable that people are acquiring LBC for investment and consumptive reasons. How do I then determine it meets the first component of the third element of Howie? The SEC lawyer argues that the token purchaser's subjective intent is not important, and whether the token has utility is not important. Judge, if 75% of LBCs were used and bought for consumptive purposes, and 25% for investment, would that make it an expectation of profits? SEC, the percentage doesn't matter. What's happening here is you can buy this thing. You can wait. Library can continue to develop its network, and it will be more. It doesn't matter that there's a utility. Yes, even if 100% of the purchasers intend to use it, utility doesn't matter according to the SEC. Library tweeted, Can someone please edit Wikipedia to say that all cryptocurrencies are not securities? It worked for a recession, so it should work for us. 
Deaton concluded, Who is Library hurting? It raised a couple hundred thousand dollars. With all the fraud and pumping up schemes to go after, they go after Little Ass Library for a few hundred thousand? The SEC wants the win for what it means symbolically and politically. It's just a grab for additional powers they haven't been granted by Congress. So all of that makes the SEC biggest bogan emitter number three. I want to tell you about the eyeglasses I've been wearing for years. As people can see on my videos, I have a very strong prescription, which makes glasses more expensive, especially when I need computer glasses, reading glasses, prescription sunglasses, and most expensively, progressive lenses for general everyday wear. To save money while still getting quality glasses, I get them from Fermu. In fact, I just got a pair of progressives with high-index aspherical lenses and a nice pair of frames my wife loves for just over $100. It would have been $500 to get them through my eye doctor. Not only do they look good, the glasses are durable. I've worn many pairs for several years without problems. All orders come with a 30-day return policy, a 3-month warranty, and one-on-one -on -one customer service. Go to Firmu, that's F-I-R-M-O-O dot TV, anytime you need quality glasses at a low price. Once again, that's Firmu dot TV. Let's round it all off with our final biggest bug emitter. And it's the FBI because of the scandal revealed by the latest whistleblowers. The first regards domestic terrorism. Apparently it isn't enough of a threat on its own, so instead of saying, oh, good to know, let's focus on real threats, they decided to be political hacks and make it look like there are a lot more domestic terrorists than there really are. FBI officials are pressuring agents to reclassify cases as domestic violent extremism in order to appease the Biden administration. Last year, FBI Director Chris Wray testified in congressional hearings about the significant increase in domestic violent extremism and that the FBI had twice the domestic terrorism investigations. Attorney General Merrick Garland had said, quote, In the FBI's view, the top domestic violent extremist threat comes from radically or ethnically motivated violent extremists, specifically those who advocated for the superiority of the white race. Congressman Jim Jordan sent a letter to Ray saying, From recent protected disclosures, we have learned that FBI officials are pressuring agents to reclassify cases as domestic violent extremism, even if the cases do not meet the criteria for such a classification. Given the narrative pushed by the Biden administration that domestic violent extremism is the greatest threat facing our country, revelation that the FBI may be artificially padding domestic terrorism data is scandalous. We have received accusations that FBI agents are bolstering the number of cases of DVEs to satisfy their superiors. Agents are not finding enough DVE cases. They are encouraged and incentivized to reclassify cases as DVE cases, even though there is minimal, circumstantial evidence to support the reclassification. Another whistleblower, who led at least one high-profile domestic terrorism investigation, stated that a field office counterterrorism assistant special agent in charge and the FBI's director of counterterrorism division have pressured agents to move cases into the DVE category to hit self-created performance metrics. According to whistleblowers, the FBI uses these metrics to dispense awards and promotions. Every whistleblower has called it an environment of pressure within the FBI. 
Jordan is demanding documents related to DVE investigations, including between the FBI, the DOJ, and the White House. In addition, Senate Judiciary Committee member Chuck Grassley is wanting an explanation about why the FBI pursued political investigations about the Trump campaign, which ended up going nowhere while suppressing the Hunter Biden probe, falsely labeling it as Russian disinformation. Instead, the FBI consistently and intentionally downplayed the seriousness of the evidence against Hunter Biden and how it links to his father. According to the Washington Examiner's Jerry Dunleavy, one of the whistleblowers claimed the FBI assistant special agent in charge of the Washington field office, Timothy Thibault, shut down a light of inquiry into Hunter Biden in October 2020, despite some of the details being known to be true at the time. Grassley wrote to Garland and Ray, quote, In fact, the information I have received reveals that Thibault's political partisanship went much deeper than inappropriate social media posts. Instead, it impacted his official decision-making on sensitive public corruption investigations. Equally concerning is that, based on Justice Department and FBI policies, Thibault's partnership likely affected investigations briefed to and approved by senior Justice Department and FBI officials. Attorney General Garland and Director Ray, simply put, based on the allegations that I have received from numerous whistleblowers, you have systemic and existential problems within your agency. You have an obligation to the country to take these allegations seriously, immediately investigate, and take steps to institute fixes to these and other matters before you. I really don't know what to say in summation that all of you aren't already thinking, except, of course, that it makes the FBI this week's final biggest Bogani matter. And now let's finish it all off with this week's and it's another one for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, joining the collective screech of the Democrats following the overturning of Roe v. Wade and KCV Planned Parenthood. It's basically what you think. She tweeted, With our basic rights under threat from a rogue Supreme Court, Congress needs to exercise our legal authority to the fullest extent. That's why today we called on Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi to support stripping the Supreme Court's jurisdiction over abortion. Um, moron! That's exactly what the Supreme Court just did! They said they have no jurisdiction over abortion. You're proposing legislation to do exactly what they just did in Dobbs. The Supreme Court said that neither they nor previous courts, specifically the Roe and Casey courts, had any jurisdiction to pipe in on the abortion debate. Since abortion isn't mentioned in the Constitution, it's only protected if it's a liberty held by the people under the Ninth Amendment. And since there was no culture and tradition of abortion rights at the time, in fact, if anything, the culture and tradition went the other way, then abortion couldn't be considered a right retained by the people. The court said they had no jurisdiction here, and it should all just be scrapped and left to the democratic process. You know, the democratic process AOC claims she reveres. Yet the letter she and nine other members signed says, quote, We write to urge your support for restricting the Supreme Court's appellate jurisdiction in the areas of abortion, marriage equality, non-procreative intimacy, and contraception. Again, that's exactly what the Supreme Court just did! In doing so, we can ensure that, as Congress takes legislative action to codify each of these fundamental rights, a radical, restless, and newly constituted majority on the court 
cannot further undermine the protections we would enact. Oh my god, so much stupid in this one. If she'd bothered to read the Constitution, she'd know that this just isn't a power of Congress. That's why it's the state legislatures that have that power. And also, if they do pass that legislation, that triggers the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court. While Article 3 does give Congress the power to regulate appellate jurisdiction as to law and to fact, they cannot override what's in the Constitution itself, and Article 3 specifically begins, quote, The judicial power shall extend in all cases, in law and equity, arising under this Constitution, the laws of the United States, and treaties made, or which shall be made, under their authority. It would be a complete mockery of the Constitution if the Congress passed a blatantly unconstitutional law and tacked on the end, Oh, by the way, the Supreme Court can't overturn this law. It doesn't work that way. Once again, we see that this stupid woman just doesn't understand what her job is. It's also apparent that when she and her ilk say democracy or the democratic process, she really means them wielding absolute power. So all of that makes Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez this week's Idiot Well, that wraps up this. Toffs at the top, plebs at the bottom, and me in the middle making a big fat pile of cash out of both of them. Edition of the Bogosity Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please go to donate.bogosity.tv for several ways to support and discord.bogosity.tv to join the discussion. Subscribe at Patreon or Subscribestar and you can listen early and ad-free. Thank you for listening. Until next time, here's a quote from Jonah Goldberg. Compassion, or social justice, is when government takes your money and gives it to someone else. Greed is when you want to keep it. The Bogosity Podcast is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution on Commercial Nerd Rivers 4.0 International License. Bogosity. We live in a world where light bulbs connect to the internet, and recent attacks on them prove that your online security is under threat like never before. Not only your websites, but the internet-enabled devices you buy. And the biggest problem is weak passwords. That's why you need LastPass. LastPass allows you to randomly generate strong, unique passwords on the web and on your internet-enabled devices, all protected by one master password. LastPass sets up in minutes and gives you secure automatic logins throughout the web, synchronizing across all your browsers, all your computers, and even your mobile devices, at home, at work, or on the road. It even securely stores sensitive form data, including credit card numbers, backup sensitive documents, software licenses, Wi-Fi logins, and more. And with LastPass Premium, you can get these benefits on other applications, manage passwords for your entire family, and also get priority customer support. Sign up at password.bogosity.tv for a free month of LastPass Premium. Log in securely everywhere using the last password you'll ever have to remember. Go to password.bogosity.tv and get LastPass now.